This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. As you're finding a seat, you can open up your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Um... As a church, we are studying really verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and uh, we're going to give most of the year to this, the whole year probably, to this study of the life of Jesus. And so we're continuing on in chapter 7 today. Before we read, I just wanted to uh, thank the men of the church, uh, because yesterday we just had a wonderful meeting. I think it was a highlight uh, a highlight of this year for sure, just being able to be together with the guys. And I uh, just want to thank you for coming out and devoting you know, your morning, half your day to being together. Uh, the guys were just really obviously very hungry to grow and, um, and to grow in, in the workplace and in their jobs. We're supposed specifically about work and um, working for the glory of God. Um, so it was just thank you for the tremendous response and the tremendous participation. It was a lot of fun to be together. If you were not able to come, but you want to hear the the teaching, that'll be up. That'll be posted. It's not posted yet, but it will be. You can just uh, look for that uh, on the website. Okay, John 7. We're reading verses 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see your works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. 
Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us as we study this text. I pray that you would give us alert hearts, open minds, sensitive consciences, eager desires to know you today. God, I pray that you would speak clearly to us from the Scripture. I pray that you would give me strength pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might be able to communicate the truth of this passage so that your people might be encouraged by your word. Lord, give us ears to hear your word today. Lord, give us hearts inclined to obey. God, do something way beyond all that we could ask or think, we pray. Have your way with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. From a human perspective, this is a low point in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. This is really a low point. I mean, you could say that the wheels have sort of come off the ministry of Jesus at this time because from a human perspective, things look bad. The context of what we just read is chapter 6. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 6, here's what happens. Jesus does an astounding miracle. He feeds upwards of 20,000 people from two loaves and five fish. And the crowds are going crazy. I mean, they love it. People are showing up because Jesus is feeding everybody, providing a buffet, all they can eat, and there's still food left over. And He miraculously provides this. People are so excited that they, in essence, chase Him around to the other side of the lake. And the next day, they show up looking for more, more miracles, more free food from Jesus. And instead of providing miracles, Jesus provides hard teaching. Teaching that calls the people to not just show up for a handout, but to show up with a desire to follow Christ with their lives. He makes claims upon their lives through his teaching. In other words, he just doesn't hand out bread. He says, I am the bread of life and you must come to me, believe in me, And follow me. And the results are that people really don't want to have anything to do with that. Verse 60 of chapter 6 says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? See what happens in a period of two days. 20,000 at a miracle, and the next day they leave. Disciples say, we don't want to follow him anymore. And he turns to the 12 and says, okay, are you guys leaving too? This may not be the exact numbers, but there's a sense in which we go from 20,000 to 12 in two days. The crowds are gone. Jesus is getting no invitations to speak at church growth conferences as he scares everyone off with the truth of who he is and the claims of the gospel upon their lives. So that's the context. 
Now, he's in Galilee where this happens, and at least in Galilee it's safe. Because down in Judea, where Jerusalem is, it's not safe. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. That's where he did the miracle. He would not go about in Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So, the crowds are deserting in Galilee, and there are death threats in Judea. From a human perspective, this is a low point in the ministry of Jesus. And chapter 7 starts off by telling us not only are the crowds gone, not only are the religious leaders threatening an execution, but his own family doesn't get him. Look at verse 3. His brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea. They're talking about this feast. The annual Feast of Booths is going on. And so they say, go to Judea. Leave here, that your disciples also may see your works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So everyone is going to the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll talk in the next message from John. We'll talk about this in some detail, about the water ceremony and all that went on at the Feast of Tabernacles, what that meant. But it was a joyous feast. It was the most popular feast. And everyone's going in a crowd. There's just a throng of people that travel uh, up to the feast. So a throng of people are going. Jesus says, his brothers are saying, come with us. And listen to what their counsel is. Look, come up there and do your stuff. Do some of the miracles. You're working out here in Podunk, Galilee, uh, in hiding. Go to Jerusalem. Thousands, hundreds of thousands likely, of people are gathered at this feast. Go do your stuff there and show yourself to the world, they say. Now, from a human perspective, that's pretty good counsel if you're an agent for a performer and you're trying to book a big gig for them. Everyone is there. This is the major platform. You can play Jerusalem, Jesus, and do your magic. And everyone will be wow. That's pretty good counsel. If you're an advisor to a political candidate, look, we've got to get your name out there. We've got to get you some momentum, some traction in the polls. So go where the people are, where you can influence, get your message out, and your popularity will grow. So if you're an agent or a political advisor from a human point of wisdom, uh, there's, from a human perspective, there's some wisdom there. But they don't get it. It says they, these, these comments come from unbelief. They don't really understand who Jesus is. They don't really believe he is who he says he is. See, Jesus makes clear throughout the gospel the problem's not getting the word out. Jesus isn't about going and sort of self-promoting as they recommend. Get your name out there so that everybody will throng to you. Chapter 6 shows us he did a big miracle. And they came, but when it came to defining who he is and giving his message, they disappeared. Jesus understands the problem is not that he needs a bigger stage for his ministry. The problem's not is that he needs to get around, that he needs to get around a bigger crowd and get his message out so that his numbers in the polls, his approval rating grows, goes up. Jesus understands the reason people are rejecting him are not because they don't know what he's doing. It's because people are opposed to God. I mean, that's the reason. Chapter 1, John says, Jesus comes, but his own people don't receive him. The people don't believe him. That's the problem. Hearts are hard. It's not that they need one more sign. It's that they need new hearts. 
That's the problem. And he explains to them, look, my time has not come. I'm not going up with a big throng. He doesn't want to go up and be prematurely executed. He knows that there will be a time. He says, my time has not yet fully come, verse 8. There's a time when he will go to a feast. It's about a year from this time or so, maybe a year and a half. It's a a ways out. And he will go to the feast of Passover, and he will be arrested, and he will be tried, and he will be beaten and mocked and tortured and put forth for public humiliation. He will be nailed to a cross. He will be brutally crucified. Our sins will be placed upon Him. God the Father will judge God the Son, not because the Son has done anything, He's innocent, but because our sins are upon Him. Jesus will die a death that is physically excruciating and spiritually far more excruciating as He takes our sins, as the Father judges uh, our sins upon Christ and pours out His wrath, and Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. That, that hour is coming. But Jesus says it's not right now. And so He says He's not going to go with them. If you notice in verse 8, there's a, if you're reading out of the ESV, there's a little note. You go up to the feast, He says, I am not going up to the feast. There's a textual note. There should be a little mark there that if you go down to the footnotes, it says that some manuscripts say, I'm, uh, I am not yet going up to the feast. Because he does go. That's a little confusing. I'm not going, verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. What does that mean? Well, it could be just what the text, the textual note says. That may be the original. I am not yet going up. But really, verse 10 explains what's meant by that. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not... He didn't go up publicly, but in private. So I'm not going with you. I'm not going. You guys go ahead. I'm not going. In essence, it's saying I'm not going with the crowd where attention can be drawn to me in a public setting. I'm going to go privately. So he privately goes down. Everybody always said go up to Jerusalem because it was elevated. Geographically, it was down from Galilee. So he goes down or he goes up to Jerusalem, however you want to express it. So he goes and... When he gets there, there is a buzz. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him. And they're saying, where is he? Where is he? Verse 12, there is much muttering about him. Mutter, 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 mutter. You could just, people are muttering. There's a buzz. There's a, there's a something in the air. Some people say, he is a good man. From a human perspective, People observe him, and he appears to do good, and he is a good man. But the Scripture tells us that he's far more than that. He's God, fully God and fully man. But that's a perspective on Jesus. Another perspective is they say he is good. Someone else says, no, he's leading the people astray. That's an insightful comment because they think he is leading the people to disobey the Sabbath. They think he has disobeyed the Sabbath by healing a man. They think he's leading the people away as a false prophet because he's claiming a special relationship with God. Actually, he's claiming to be God. So people people are saying, hey, you can't lead people into heresy and say you're good. That's good. He's good. You can't do that. And the same is true today. If someone is teaching things that aren't true with Scripture and are teaching heresy, we can't say, well, yeah, but he's a good guy, just teaches heresy. No, and it's just leading people astray. It's leading people away from the Word of God. Well, that's not good. And so they're saying, you know, he, he's leading people 
astray. So these are human perspectives. He's good. No, he's leading people astray. Go, go, show yourself. Show the world, his brothers say. You see all these human perspectives on Jesus. Now the rest of the passage, verses 14 through 24, have to do with his teaching. It says about the middle of the feast, verse 14, he goes into the temple and he starts teaching. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? He's not a trained rabbi. He doesn't have a degree. He hasn't been recognized or ordained in the system. And yet he's getting up and teaching and people are blown away. Why is that? Well, at one level, it may be because he's teaching and he isn't a recognized teacher in the rabbinic system. But another reason that they marveled that Scripture teaches throughout is that Jesus' teaching was different than the other rabbis. Now, we read it, and not having been there or been in the culture, we just say, okay, we're reading. That's what Jesus says. That's how he teaches. But his teaching was very different. Here was the style of teaching in the day. You would read a Scripture, and then you would make points, and you would support your points with Uh, rabbinical authority. So you would quote other rabbis. Read the scripture and they would say, this means so-and-so. As rabbi such-and-such said, you know, uh, 200 years ago. Or this scripture, we apply this scripture this way because the rabbi so-and-so taught. And so they would quote other sources of authority. But Jesus doesn't do that. Now I know this text doesn't say that, but other texts tell us this is how Jesus taught, and this is what's surprising for the people at one level, aside from the fact he's uncredentialed, is that Jesus said stuff like this. He didn't stand up and read a passage of the Old Testament and say, well, you know, I want to remind you all that Rabbi so-and-so once said, this is what he said. He read the text and he would say, you've heard it said before, but I am telling you. There's no footnotes in Jesus' sermon. He's, He's the authority. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, what's he doing? He's, he's teaching in a very different manner. He's, he's, he's making himself an authority. Truly, truly, I say to you. In Mark 1, it says they hear Jesus teach. They're astonished because he teaches as one with authority, not as their scribes. They weren't, he wasn't quoting all the right authorities. He wasn't reading all the right books, well, except the Bible. He was getting up and saying, I say to you. Now, he makes the point here that he gets his authority from someone else just like they did. Look where he gets his authority. Verse 16, Jesus answered them when they're shocked by this. You're not quoting anybody. Who credentialed you? This is what he says. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I'm speaking for God the Father. I'm speaking the very Word of God. Here's my footnote. God said that in eternity. I'm from eternity. I am with God. I am God. That's my authority. This is totally unconventional. Now, we can certainly commend... There are things to commend. It's easy just to critique all the Jews listening, but there's some things to commend here. First of all, they're looking for authorities. They don't want a teacher that gets up and has a creative theology, nor do we. We're not looking, run, if someone is creating teaching and teaching things that have never been heard before. When it comes to theology, 
You do not get bonus points for creativity, of creating your own ideas and truths about God. You get minus points. You don't get minus points. You get disqualified for creative theology. And sometimes there can be an urge for this in the evangelical church, especially in a place where we're saturated with Bible TV and Bible radio and Bible stores and uh, Christian teaching all over the place and churches all over the place. So there can be an urge in our culture to say something that's never been said before, to wake up those who are sort of immune to the teaching of the Bible or something like that. But that's dangerous. That's an impulse we want to avoid. We're not creating new teaching. Now, we can be creative in our application of theology and truth. In other words, because we have a mission to connect with people in a certain culture, a certain, you know, certain stage of life even, we can be creative in our application to help apply it to different stations of life, different experiences of life. There's, there's room there to be sure. But the Word of God, who Christ is, what the Bible teaches, what God is like, who the Holy Spirit is, what He does, there's zero room for creativity. It is factual. It is reporting. A preacher is a herald. And heralds don't get creative. Um, a king would send a herald into a village and he would roll out the scroll and say, Hear ye, hear ye. The king declares, and all the villagers are, what is the king saying? I mean, you've seen that, like Renaissance movies or cartoons or what? you know, the guy doing that. That's what I'm doing. I, I, don't, I don't have the freedom to say, hear ye, hear ye. Uh, I got a better idea. There's no creativity. We report what God says the creativity can come in the application. So they're right. They're saying, who's your authority? Where do you get this truth? That's a good, in, that's a good impulse. He says, I get this truth from the Father. The one who sent me. So he is coming in and he's breaking all the human perspectives. He's bringing God's perspective. Verse 17. Any, uh, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So he's saying, look, if you really want to honor the Lord, you will know that what I'm saying is true. If you want to please God, you'll know what I'm saying is true and that I'm God. But if they just are about a religious system, then it's going to continue to make no sense to them. So he goes on to say, you have the law of Moses. You don't even obey the law of Moses. Why are you seeking to kill me? You say that, you know, I'm claiming to be God. You say that I am breaking the Sabbath. You have the law. You don't even keep the law. Why are you trying to kill me? And look what the people say. Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. That's another human perspective. They're looking with a human perspective and saying, this guy is saying stuff that is crazy. This guy is saying he can, in essence, it looks like, break all of our traditions on the Sabbath by healing a man. That's not allowed. He, he is going outside of the law. He's making claims. I mean, he's doing miracles. So how could that happen? Only one way. The devil is working through him. That happens in other passages. He gets called demonic. That is a human perspective that they bring Jesus has a demon. And then he, in the last section, he exposes the blindness of the human perspective. 
He exposes the blindness of the human perspective. This is what he says, verse 21. I did one work and you all marvel at it. What's he talking about? I did one work. Well, he's talking about chapter 5. And the way we know that is because if you look down here at verse um, 23, he says, "You are you angry with me because... On the Sabbath, I made a man's whole body well. That's chapter 5. That got him in a lot of trouble. There's a guy, he cannot move, he's lame. And Jesus comes in and heals him. It's Saturday, the Sabbath. Jesus heals him, says, take up your mat and walk. And this guy walks, and and they're saying you're breaking the Sabbath because you did work. You healed and then told him to get up, take his mat and walk, act of work. So you're doing work on the Sabbath. You're breaking our Sabbath or God's Sabbath law. So Jesus says, here's how blinded you are by your human perspective. He says, you will circumcise a male on the Sabbath. And what's he talking about? Well, on, for a Jewish male, a Jewish baby, uh, on the eighth day of life, a Jewish male was to be circumcised as a mark of the covenant that they were God's people. And uh, if that eighth day landed on Saturday, the Sabbath, it was okay, though circumcision is an act of work, um, it was okay to circumcise on the Sabbath day because the importance of receiving the sign of the covenant, that was okay. And so Jesus says, it's okay for you, if I could say it this way, to a, you know, address a part of the body for the sake of the covenant. It's okay to do that on the Sabbath for you, but I come in and I heal a whole man's body. He says, I don't address a part of a body. I change the entire guy's life. Jesus comes on the Sabbath day, God in the flesh, and he sees a suffering man who can't make it into the pool where people are being healed. And he goes to him on the day of God. He goes to this man moved by compassion, seeing the man suffering. I mean, there's a guy whose entire life is characterized by poverty. He, he has to beg alms. He can't work for himself. He can't get from one place to another easily on his own. His whole life is characterized by suffering. He's likely something of an outcast. He needs healing and Jesus comes to him moved by compassion and with a phrase changes everything about this guy's existence. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and he's healed and he meets the Savior. God shows up on the Sabbath. God shows up on a Sabbath and changes a man's life. That's something to get excited about. But because of their human perspective, they are so deceived that they say they look at the compassion, they look at the mercy, they look at the power, they look at the changed life, and they say, you shouldn't do that on Saturdays. We're going to kill you. They want to kill Jesus because of this. It's something they should be celebrating, and yet they're opposing God rather than receiving him. And so this is what Jesus says as a conclusion to all of this. Verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. They're judging by appearances. They're judging with a human perspective. And they are blinded to God's perspective. They have a narrow view of their religious tradition 
that defines what God is allowed and not allowed to do from their understanding, and they view Jesus that way. And it's a human evaluation. It's a human perspective. We live in a culture, arguably, whose highest value is tolerance toward differing religious and all kinds of perspectives, but religious perspectives. And for sure, the Scripture would call us as Christians to be respectful of all people, regardless of their perspective, religiously speaking. We are to be loving. We are to be humble. We are to serve those who differ with us. So we are not to be... uh, We're not to relate judgmentally, self-righteously, as if we, in and of ourselves, are right and they're wrong. We're to be affected by grace, to say, yes, we have a perspective that we believe is the perspective, and God has given us that by grace. But see, the Scripture doesn't embrace our cultural value. The Scripture says, and this passage teaches, there are many human perspectives about Jesus. There are many perspectives. Do the works and the crowds will come, as brothers say. He has a demon. He's a good man. There's all these human perspectives. And the passage teaches us that only God's perspective of who Jesus is. When it comes to the question of who is Jesus, there's not a lot of options. Well, there are a lot of options, but there's only one right option. And that's how does Jesus define himself. He's not left it to the determination of those who observe him with their perspective to define him. God defines him. See, the brothers say, promote yourself, do some signs, show yourself to the world, they say. And it appears right to their human perspective. The people at the feast say, he's a good man. They don't know that he's really God. He's a good man. It appears right in their human perspective. Others say, he's leading people astray. Why? He's making claims to be God. This can't be. He's leading people off the path. And it seems right to their human perspective. When they hear him teach, they can't figure it out. He teaches differently. He teaches with authority. He doesn't have any training. How can this be? This can't be. It's what it seems to a human perspective. Other people hear him teaching and they say, he has a demon. Satan must be behind of all of these doing. Satan must be leading him to break the law. Satan must be empowering him to do these works. He's crazy. He has a demon. That seems to make sense. It appears right to their human reason. The leaders say it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath. To work is to break God's law. Jesus is a lawbreaker. And if we let him keep going, everybody's going to be breaking the law. He must die. He's a troublemaker. He's leading people astray. He's breaking the law. And that appears right to their human perspective. But what does Jesus say? Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Don't judge with a human perspective. But what is right judgment? Right judgment is God's perspective. See, right judgment is Jesus won't go prematurely in a crowd drawing attention to himself to Jerusalem, no matter what the counselors, no matter what the brothers say. He's not going to do that. He's going to wait until the Father tells him to go, and then he will go and die for our sins. That's right judgment, because that's God's perspective. 
He's not merely a good man. As a matter of fact, in another gospel, Jesus says, why do you, somebody calls him good, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. He's, he's not just a good man. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is flawless. He is the definition of goodness. He is good personified. All goodness is measured against his person. He's God. That's right judgment about Jesus because that's God's perspective about Jesus. He's not leading people astray, as they say at the, at the feast. He's not leading people astray because He is the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is the path. He says, no one comes to the Father by, by me. He is the path. Every other pathway is being led astray. The re- Here's the irony. The religious leaders who are threatening to kill Him, they are leading everyone astray. The religious leaders who say he cannot heal on Saturday, the Sabbath, they're leading everyone astray. The guy in the crowd who pops off, he's got a demon, he's leading everyone astray. You can't lead people off the path of Jesus is the path. And so to turn from him is being, by definition, astray. That's right judgment because that is God's perspective. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth. The life. He comes to glorify himself. He comes, I'm sorry, he comes to glorify the Father. He tells the truth. He honors the Father. He says what the Father tells him to say. That's right, judgment, because that's God's perspective. He brings healing to a man on the Sabbath out of compassion. Jesus doesn't come breaking the Sabbath. Jesus comes fulfilling the Sabbath. In another place, Jesus says, the Sabbath, man is not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. The Sabbath is a blessing, is what he's saying. And when God shows up on the Sabbath and says to a man who cannot walk, get up and walk, and heals him and reveals himself to him and turns the man's life around, that's the whole purpose of the Sabbath. Meeting God is the purpose of the Sabbath. That's right judgment, because that's God's perspective. So here's a bunch of people who don't get it, sadly. They judge Jesus by appearances. They evaluate him by their human perspectives, and they lack God's perspective. Well, if all that be true, here's the big question. How do we gain God's perspective? How in the world do we get God's perspective? If there's a lot of human perspectives, how do we get God's? Well, Jesus answers this in the heart of the passage, verse 17. If anyone's will, their personal will, their desire, is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Here's what Jesus says. Anybody who wants to honor God, anybody who wants to please God, anybody who wants to do God's will with their life, they will know that I am who I say I am. They will know that I'm Christ. They will know that I'm Jesus. They will know that my teaching is true. Do do you see what he's saying to them? They're all confused by his teaching, and he, in essence, is saying, we will understand God's Word when we are willing to obey it. We'll understand God's Word when we are willing to obey it. That is the problem with all of the people. They're not willing. In chapter 6, they run because they're not willing to embrace Him, to eat Him, as it were, as the bread of life, to make Him their nourishment. They're not willing to follow. They're not willing to serve Him. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, or maybe you're not sure, maybe you're checking things out, maybe you're uncertain, confused, skeptical, this passage has something to say to you today. I'm glad you came. 
we're always glad that you come. And uh, there's something to say from this passage to you today. I, I think I'd want to ask you a question. And it could appear like a rude question if I don't know you. I'm going to take a chance and step out here a little bit. I'd like to get to know you, but if I don't know you, um, th- this could sound a little forward. But I want to ask you a question that I think comes from this text. You may say, I'm kind of skeptical. I'm trying to find out about Jesus. Is he really God? You know, what does this really mean? I'm trying to figure out the Christian faith. I'm trying to get some more information. Here's a question I would ask you and encourage you to ask of yourself. Here's the question. Do I really want to obey God? That's the question. If, if God could answer, or if someone could give me God's answers on the things that bother me, the things I that I'm confused about, you know? And there's a lot of things that, that we don't have answers for. Why is there a terribly destructive tornado this last week in Alabama? You know, why is there suffering in the world? These kinds of, there are hard questions. But I want to ask you this. If there were some answer to those questions, would you be willing at that moment, the moment that question is answered, to live your life for Jesus Christ, to follow Him as the ruler of your life, to embrace the Scripture as His wonderful, glorious, good truth to govern your life? Would you be willing to be a servant of Christ if those questions were answered? See, that's really what God, that's really what Jesus is getting at here. I mean, if Jesus is God, if you could come to the reasonable conclusion that Jesus is God, would you give your life to Him? Would you desire to commit your life to serving Him? And what Jesus says here is if you do want to serve Him, and you do want to obey Him, and you do want to follow Him, then the answers will become clear. That's what he says. He says, anybody who wants to know God's will will know who I am and will know that this teaching is the truth. There are, you do need to understand who Christ is. You do need to understand that he's God and man. You do need to understand why he died, that God is holy and we're sinful and he died for us. You do need to understand the facts that our sins were put on him. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. You do need to understand that, that uh, the way we receive forgiveness of our sins is to believe in Christ as our Savior, to turn from our sins, to believe in him and submit our lives to him. You do need to understand those things. But once understanding those things, oftentimes the various things, the rabbit trails, the things that trip us up, they're sometimes just smoke screens that cover the real issue, which is maybe I don't really want to live for God with my life. That's what Jesus says. So here's a prayer I want to encourage you to pray. If you're skeptical, if you're investigating, um, you may have even said, God, if you're there, make yourself known to me. That's a good prayer. But I want to give you another prayer to pray, and it's this. God, would you give me a desire to serve you with my life? Would you give me a desire to obey you? See, truth comes to us through our mind, and once we understand the message of the gospel, it affects our heart, that is our inner being, our will, as he says here. It affects our inner being, and we respond with our life to that truth. So sometimes we think truth leads to heart change. But the other is true as well. It is a changed heart that leads to understanding and believing the truth. 
Because we will understand God's Word when we're willing to obey it. So there's the challenge. If you're skeptic, if you're a church kid, I recently spoke, had really the privilege. Pete invited me and I was able to speak at the uh, youth retreat with the youth, young people. And I spoke to them. Their parents were in the room, but I just said, this is for the kids. And I just spoke to church kids. And I opened up the message saying, you know, I'm getting up here to teach something from Ephesians. And at least half the room could get up and teach this because you're church kids. You've been around it your whole life. There's tremendous blessings to being a church kid, but there's challenges as well. And the challenge is, oh, I've heard that, I know that, I heard that, and just tune it out. Some church kids probably haven't listened to me for the last 30 minutes because you know this passage. You've heard it before. You know Jesus, right? And so the reality is that we just know it here, but we've never been changed. We've never had a heart that wants to obey God. And you've got stuff up here, but... It doesn't really all click. You don't really get what's the big deal about Jesus. Why are people excited about him? Why are people live? You don't get it because your heart's not inclined to want to live for him. And so you need to pray, Lord, free me from just being a church kid that knows about you and give me a heart to love you, to serve you, to want you, to be amazed by you. Change my heart so that I'm desirous of living for you. And when that happens, he will make more sense. If you're a Christian, the same is true. We'll understand God's word if we're willing to obey it. I mean, here's the reality. I I can read these passages and just distance myself from all the people in it. I've never said Jesus has a demon. So they're bad and I'm good. You know, it's really not wise. When you read, when we read stories of the gospel, if we put all the people and the characters in there and say, boy, they're all, we're not like them, and we come away just sort of identifying ourselves with Jesus, like we're him or something, that's really not a good way to read the story. We're, we're, like, we're like the people in the crowds. That's what our nature is. We're not like Jesus and there's all the crowds out there. And we're like them. And so the reality is we're a whole lot like the brothers. Now, it said they, they, had, they acted from unbelief. And if you're a Christian, you have a foundational belief in Jesus. But we act like them, right? They have a plan for Jesus. They're advising Jesus. Uh, Jesus, uh, Son of God, uh, God incarnate, the guy who spoke everything into being, here's what we think you should do. Go and reveal yourself to everybody so that they will know you. They're telling Jesus what his agenda should be. And by the way, there may be self-interest in that because the family name is shamed at this point. Oh, you're the, you are the brother of the guy that did that miracle, but then told everybody they have to eat his flesh and eat his, drink his blood. What your brother? Oh, nobody's following your brother. That's your brother. Jesus is not popular in Galilee right now. Nobody's following him. He's the brothers. They're giving counsel so that he will be known by the whole world. And guess what? They're going to look pretty good at that point. We're the brother of the rock star at that point. Now the brother of the guy that nobody wants anything to do with. So they've got plans for Jesus. You go down there and do this. We do the same thing. We pray, God, here's what you can do to make my life better. Jesus, I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. Here's how you can make my life better, Jesus. And and we can cloak it in spirituality. God, if you would do this for me, people would meet you. God, if you would do what I want to do, if you would change that circumstance the way I dictate it, it would be better. So we can come to Jesus with our plan, with our agenda rather than coming with his plan and his agenda, just like the brothers. And when we, when we don't come, when we come with, here's my plan, as opposed to here's your plan, we won't see Jesus as he is in a full way. 
But the Scripture says that if we come with a heart to obey Him, Jesus, what is your plan for me? Then He will be clear to us. That's the emphasis of this passage. His identity, His person, His nature, His Word will be clear to us when we come with a heart to serve Him. Come for His plan and His agenda. This is a huge emphasis in John. This is the way Jesus lives His life. Why doesn't Jesus go to the festival, the feast? Because it's not His time. The Father hasn't told Him to go. Jesus says this kind of stuff all over John. I only do what I see the Father doing. Here he's saying, I only teach what I hear the Father teaching. Why am I teaching this? This is my Father's teaching. He told me to teach it. I'm teaching it. I only do what the Father is calling me to do. Where is my authority? Oh, it's not my. It's His authority. I'm here in His authority. He said in John 4, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me to accomplish, to fulfill His work. He's saying, here's my food. Here's what I live for. Here's my sustenance, my nutrition. This keeps me alive. What? Doing the will of Him who sent me. It's His will that sustains me. Jesus lives His life every day. I'm here for you, Father. I want to be about your business today. Now, we don't live that way. And the good news is that because Jesus did, our independence, our rebellion our living our own way, our telling God what He can do for us, our holding God responsible when He's not being a good God because He's not doing what we want Him to do. All that nonsense, all that rebellion is forgiven because Jesus did obey the Father in our place and Jesus died for our rebellion as a substitute. So we're clean before God. But the reality is we will grow in God. We will understand His Word when we approach Him, not with, here's what you should do, but here I am, send me. Lord, what are you speaking to me through your Word? I want to obey you. I want to honor you. I want to glorify you. I want to please you. When that's our genuine attitude, Jesus says the Scripture will come alive. He'll be clear to us in those situations. Listen, you may be facing a situation today where you wonder what God's will is for you. You may even be paralyzed. You've got options, choices. What am I supposed to do? What does God want me to do? It's like you're on let's make a deal and there's door number one, door number two, door number three. Do I do one? Yeah, yeah, that, no, wait a minute, two. Uh, Pros and cons list. Oh yeah, it's definitely three. Oh, but I heard this. So maybe it is one. You're just living. What am I, what am I supposed to be doing here? Not always, but sometimes I don't even think it matters. If it's not breaking the moral law of God, a lot of times it does not matter. Door number one, door number two, door number three, white sock, blue sock, brown sock. Just get some socks on. Sort of paralyzed at the sock door. Oh, what does God want me to do? Cover your feet and go to work and get something done. And sometimes it can be that way in, in things that are, seem a little bit bigger for us, decisions. And so the emphasis is what decision do I make? Where really what we should be saying is, God, I need my heart affected. I need to say, God, it's not about door number one, door number two, door number three. It's about my heart. Do I want to obey, serve, honor, and please you? Lord, soften my heart. Lord, conform my heart to your image. God, give me a desire that whatever door it is, it's for you. And I'm dependent on you and I desire you. A lot of finding God's will, as it's called sometimes, in the Bible is really about having our will humbled to embrace his will And then providentially, however he leads, he's going to be pleased with our lives because the posture of our... It's not because we magically pick the door. 
It's because our heart was changed. And when we come to Him in that way, He will be clearer to us because we'll understand God's Word when we're willing to obey Him, willing to obey it. See, what you see and understand of God is connected to your heart's desire to please Him. So we want to pray, God, open my eyes to you in the Scripture. Open my eyes to your direction in my life. But open my eyes as you're opening my heart to be soft to you. When we see Jesus from God's perspective, it'll change our lives. Radical life change comes when we see Christ for who He is. You can't sit still. You can't be... You can't be bored. You can't be detached. You can't be distant. You can't want nothing to do with God if you could see Jesus the way He really is. If we could see Him in His glory, there'll be nobody in heaven that says, man, this isn't really what I was expecting. Whoa, I was expecting something good. No, folks in heaven that see Jesus because their vision of Him is clear, their existence is so different than ours is so much of the time. And so we want a clear picture of Jesus to direct our lives. And we get a clear picture and a clear understanding as our hearts are softened with the desire. Anyone who comes with their will, wanting to do his will, Jesus says, you'll know who I am. You'll know my teaching. You'll know my truth. When we come with that desire, God answers that desire with revealing himself to us through the scripture. His word comes alive and it's clear. It doesn't mean he answers every question we have. It doesn't mean we don't have problems. But there is, when there's a, an inclination by his grace to obey him, there is a peace that comes. There is a rest that comes. There is a joy that comes even in sorrow and suffering. And there is a clarity that comes. We may not know all the mysteries of the universe, but we know Jesus. And we see him in the midst of our lives. The goal isn't to get all the mysteries of the universe answered. The goal is to know Jesus. And we know him and he becomes clear when our desire is to obey him. We will understand God's word when we're willing to obey it. The folks in this crowd were not, and so they missed out. May we not be like that. May God today refresh us in him and change our hearts so that we would be able to see him more clearly. May he open our eyes by opening our hearts. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. 